Hello everyone, welcome to our Sabbath School From Home podcast. My name's Cameron and I live in Launceston, Tasmania. I'm usually one of the hosts of this podcast. This week I was unable to make the recording, uh, being away on the wet, wild and windy west coast of Tasmania, enjoying some time with my family, and uh, which is somewhat appropriate given that our, our topic this week is about education in the family and the role of the family. I have, however, just finished the edit of the discussion that Luke and Locke and Ken have had, and I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Just before we jump into this week's episode, there is a comment that, that came from our discussion a week or so ago on chaos that I thought I would address, because it's a really great one. So this comment comes from Don in New South Wales, and he asks whether we're mistaken chaos for complexity or maybe complexity for chaos. Don says, maybe we are lacking a few of the tools to discover complexity within something that appears to be chaotic. Now, obviously, Don's right. One of the signature defining properties of chaos is that it is something that we don't understand. And it is certainly the case that there could be many things that we currently think of as chaotic, but which actually uh, have order and structure within them. Uh, But the system is too complex for us to identify that order and structure. It is also the case, though, that things like the examples we gave, things like the decaying uranium atom, are held by science to be genuinely random. When, when scientists assume that this thing uh, cannot be predicted at an individual level and then build theories based on that assumption, those theories are the most successful at explaining the world around us. They actually work the best. So at an empirical level, assuming some basic level of randomness seems to work. It's also true that if everything is ordered and structured in the universe, that actually raises another whole can of worms, which we weren't able to discuss a few weeks ago, but I'll I'll, uh, just point this out. If everything is deterministic, if knowledge of the present position and, and structure of the universe and all the atoms and molecules in it, if that was enough to then predict what will come next with 100% certainty... In other words, if everything in the universe is deterministic and there is no genuine randomness, uh, that doesn't leave very much room for freedom. certainly doesn't leave room for for free will in as much as our thoughts and our personalities are mediated through the physical universe. uh, If the physical universe is 100% deterministic, then, then, then so are we. And that's certainly not something that we draw from from Genesis and and people from the Judeo-Christian hold very dear that that they, God has given humanity some degree of freedom, although although that's been up for contention exactly what degree that is, uh, and uh, and there's a lot to be said about that. But certainly, having some unpredictability in the universe is is actually a uh, huge benefit for people who do want to believe in in freedoms. So uh, yes, certainly there could be a lot of complexity in the universe, that and it's possible that some of the things we identify as random are, are just simply too complex for us to understand Uh, but it's also the case that the current understanding is that there are things that are genuinely random and in fact we would hope that to be the case to allow room for freedom the the real point of course and he, he makes a really good point chaos is a messy term we sometimes oppose chaos with predictability that is we use chaos to mean random we sometimes use chaos to mean purposeless. So chaos opposed to purpose. 
We sometimes oppose chaos with uh, structure or obvious structure. So uh, chaos is a bit of a, a complicated term. And I, I think that the point that we most hoped to make was that chaos as randomness and chaos as purposelessness uh, are not the same thing. It is quite possible to have randomness at a, at a smaller level and for purpose to exist at a much larger level. Um, thank you so much for your comments. Uh, keep them coming. Uh, we're really interested to know if the podcast works. Does, does it help you? Um, it helps us, and we'll continue to have the discussions, irrespective of whether they're published as a podcast. Uh, but getting comments from you uh, lets us know that the time it takes us to record is worthwhile. And we're so glad uh, to know that we are succeeding if only in a, in a limited way in creating a, a bit of the community, a, a bit of sense of connection, some sharing some fun ideas, you know, some of the goals we had at the, at the onset of this uh, COVID situation. You know, hopefully, obviously, everything returns to normal soon, but we're, we're certainly really enjoying our podcast, and we hope you are too. So I'll leave you now to listen to this week's episode and uh, for Lachlan to introduce it. Hello and welcome back to our Sabbath School from Home podcast, where this quarter we're going back to school to discuss some things that we have studied or developed some expertise in and see what insights they offer to the topics of the Sabbath School. Today, we're looking at education in the context of the family, and we have an interesting perspective given a fairly common interest in flying represented by the, by the participants in this podcast. Looking forward to the conversation. I'm Lachlan. I'm in Sydney. Uh, g'day, I'm Ken. I'm back in Launceston after spending five days walking the overland track with my 18-year-old uh, daughter and another good friend. And I'm Luke, uh, calling in from very slightly less hot and humid Hong Kong. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to kick off by reading a passage from Deuteronomy 6, which is a very well-known passage and is quite significant for the Jewish culture over many hundreds of years. So we're going to look at Deuteronomy 6 and we'll read verses 4 to 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. So right in there is the, is the in my version, in the ESV, it was, you shall teach them diligently to your children. So there's very much the family context here, the role of family and of transmitting values, not just knowledge, but, but really uh, the significance of that knowledge from one generation to the next. And this made me think of the way that so much of the time in families, we are, at, at in the best times, we are equipping children for things yet to come in their lives. You know, they are children, they're not facing adult problems, but they will. And so much of the education that we focus on within the family, within the home, is really about preparing ways of reacting, ways of thinking, ways of solving problems and dealing with issues that are going to be helpful to those kids. And this is where it connects with flying, because 
I'm going to have to defer to Ken and Luke. Um, unfortunately, Cam is not here with us as we record, uh, but the three of them are pilots. And so I would like to hear their perspective because I've heard many stories of pilots who recount the way that during their pilot training, they had to cope with unexpected engine failures when their instructor instructor without warning dropped the throttle, all sorts of other things. And it seems to me that what's happening there is a, a training pilot is being forced to learn before they really need to be able to fly unpowered so that they can do it in a case of emergency. Well, in fact, it's happened to me, uh, Lachlan. Um, right. Tell in, us the story, Ken. It was in 1994, uh, and I was flying a uh, uh, Belanca Decathlon. Uh, it had just had a new engine put in it, and uh, I went out to do some aerobatics in the training area, and I'd done aerobatics for about 10 minutes, some loops and rolls and cubinates and reverse cubinates and various other uh, manoeuvres. And I uh, decided I'd finish off with a spin in each direction. Uh, so I pulled the power back and uh, just kept easing the stick back to maintain height and the speed gradually washed off and the store warning horn uh, went off and I pulled the uh, stick back back into my stomach and kicked in full left rudder and um, went into a spin. And as I got, you count the spin by half turns, at least in a decathlon uh, with the rate at which it turns. Um, and uh, I got to half a turn, uh, counted, counted out half. And uh, then when looking out the nose and saw the propeller turn and then turn once more and stop. Um, and, uh, and so, uh, it was that moment of panic, uh, and then the realization that, well, actually this is for real. Um, and the first thing on the, uh, on the check for the first series of checks is a mnemonic CMFT. And the first is convert speed to height. But of course, in this case, the aircraft is not actually flying it's spinning so the um uh, it's auto rotating and the wings are in a stalled state not producing any lift so in this case the convert speed to height was actually uh recover from the spin um uh, full right rudder and stick forward uh and then convert height to speed so that i ah. got to my uh, uh got to the uh correct um uh, speed and then um and and then once I'd done that, uh, then it was, okay, now this is for real. Um, uh, uh, Carby heat on, mixture rich fuel, check the contents, check the selection, check the pressure, put the fuel pump on uh, and trim for the uh, maximum glide speed, 70 knots. Uh, and then uh, pick a field. Fortunately, I was doing aerobatics over uh, an area with a number of paddocks. Um, and, uh, and so, uh, I selected a, uh, a selected a field, uh, that, I, and the 500 foot point and a thousand foot point to, uh, to make it into the field. Uh, and then went through the other checks again, fuel contents, selection, pressure, uh, mixture, uh, check full rich, then check for a full range of response, oil temperature and pressure. Of course, by that point, uh, the oil pressure was zero because the engine was stopped. Uh, and I realized it was zero and thought that was the problem. But then I quickly realized that, well, no, that's not the problem. The fuel, pre the, the uh, oil pressure is zero because the engine's not actually 
uh, turning and then check the switches, the magnetos, check left, check right, uh, throttle, uh, check for a full range of response and still nothing. And uh, with the switches, check the starter motor and push the starter motor and see if I can get it going. Uh, but it, even with the starter motor, the uh, propeller wouldn't turn over. So I made a mayday call on the frequency I was on, which is the local airfield frequency. And the uh, person who owned the aeroplane, uh, the chief flying instructor <laughs> of the flying school, was actually doing circuits in a little Cessna 150 at the time. Uh, um, and uh, uh, so um, uh, he called me and asked me whether I'd tried the starter and whether I'd checked the oil temperature and pressure. And, of course, I had and reported the results to him and uh, said I'd selected a field to land in. And then I realized that the field that I was going to uh, land in actually had a great big row of trees at the end of it. Uh, so I hadn't selected a very good field because one of the things that I should be looking for is uh, overshoots and wasn't a very good field for that. But uh, could I then make it over the trees at the end if I decided I was going to land in the paddock past it? Um, I, I wasn't sure about that, but I thought, well, at least if I maintain my best glide speed, that'll give me the best chance. And uh, so I did that, being tempted to push the nose down and try and get in faster into the field that I'd already selected. But uh, I actually shot up a quick prayer and said, what do I do here, God? And uh, um, pulled back to the uh, correct speed, having momentarily given in to the temptation to try and uh, go faster into the field I'd already selected. Glided over the, uh, uh, the trees at the end of the original field by about uh, 20 feet and uh, then went through the final checks, brakes off and working, unlock the door and push it open, uh, switches off, uh, fuel uh, master um, uh, off and harnesses secure, uh, and then put the, and that was as I was approaching the, uh, the flare, uh, so, uh, and then flared and then uh, uh, felt the wheels touch down and thought I was doing very well until I saw a, a ditch running across mm. the paddock. And I was devastated by that because I thought, well, you know, I've, I've made it down, uh, but now I'm going to rip the undercarriage off uh, in this ditch running across the paddock. Having previously, while I was flying the aircraft uh, down, thought, boy, I hope I don't bend it because the owner had just sold his uh, then uh, very up-to-date and expensive Celica GT4 uh, to pay for the new engine in the aeroplane. And I was thinking, well, don't bend it, Ken, don't bend it. He's just spent a fortune and sold his car to put the new engine in the aeroplane. And then yeah. to realise that I was going to rip the undercarriage off on a, um, uh, on a ditch that was running across the paddock. And, uh, and then thought, well, you know, I've actually just got enough airspeed. I'm just going to just pull back. And uh, so I just pulled back and was just enough to float across the ditch um, nice. in, in the paddock. <laughs> And so I thought, well, that's great. I've saved that. Um, and then the next thing that uh, happened was another ditch uh, appeared uh, in front of me. And I thought, well, I didn't really pick a very good field, did I? Now I'm going to rip the undercarriage off on the second ditch. And then I realized that, well, no, actually, I could just probably apply the brakes and stop in front of that ditch, which is exactly what happened. So uh, uh, stopped in front of that ditch, completely undamaged aeroplane and uh, uninjured pilot uh, and sat in there breathing rather heavily and with the adrenaline pumping through my veins. And then after a, a little while sitting in the aeroplane, uh, suddenly felt a huge bump through the 
control column that I was, uh, uh, the control stick that I was still holding on to. And it scared the living daylights out of me. I, I, <laughs> I thought, what on earth is that? And then hopped out of the aeroplane to uh, find a, uh, a cow, a friendly cow, nudging the elevator um, to find <laughs> out what this strange bird that had landed in its paddock was. Um, uh, eventually, the, um, uh, the owner and, uh, and an aircraft engineer came out. Uh, the first thing the aircraft engineer did was to check and make sure that I'd tried the starter motor. You can tell whether the ring's engaged. And uh, I had, uh, so he was satisfied that I'd done all that I could to uh, um, uh, get the aeroplane going while it was still flying. And uh, uh, the owner arrived after a few hours and uh, the uh, owner flew the aeroplane out of the paddock. So I figured that was a pretty good outcome uh, for an engine failure. You might be wondering what it was that caused the failure. Well, we don't really know, save that it was a new engine. And uh, when you get down to uh, the stall speed that's necessary for a, a spin. There's no um, airflow or very little airflow over the propeller to keep the engine turning. Um, and uh, it was quite a new engine with uh, some high compressions and it might well be that the force of, you know, turning into the spin just counteracted the, uh, the, the force that the engine was producing at uh, a very low idle and uh, and just stopped the engine. And then I couldn't get it started again because having gone through the actual checks and put the fuel pump on, my suspicion is that that pumped the cylinders full of fuel when it wasn't turning and created a hydraulic lock because there was a lot of fuel running out mm. of the engine when it ended up on the ground. And it did say to me, so all the checks that I did in the air were good. Um, but I did reflect on my pre-flight checks one of which is having done the engine run-up and checking the uh, magnetos are working both sides um, to pull the throttle right back to idle. And as I later recalled it, I just have a suspicion that when I pulled the throttle right back to idle on the ground before um, I took off, it, um, it actually, uh, the engine started to die. And so I just cracked the throttle open a little bit uh, to keep mm. it going. Uh, of course, it would have been much better to know that when I pull the throttle back to idle, the engine's going to die when I was on the yeah. ground uh, than when I was uh, uh, just doing the first of a couple of spins to finish off a fun session of aerobatics. Anyway, there you are. That's 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 the story of my engine failure, Lachlan. <laughs> yeah, that's a cool story, Ken. It's extra cool because it ends really quite well for a story of that kind. Well, it so does. That's excellent. Yeah, I've I've just realised that my mother listens to this podcast. <laughs> and stories like that are not going to endear her to my intentions of continuing being involved in aviation. Well, I don't know. I think it's a great story. It ends really well, Luke. No one hurt. No plane injured. <laughs> I don't think it's the ending she'd have issue with. <laughs> Everything up until that, up until the cow, she would take exception. Right. So, Luke, you haven't you haven't uh, had an uh, an unintended engine failure while flying, have you? Have you had experiences like the one that I alluded to, where in in pilot training you were forced to deal with a a situation orchestrated by an instructor? Uh, yes, everybody has to deal with the sneaky and nasty instructors <laughs> who uh, who point at something out of the window to get you to look away and then pull the throttle off uh, suddenly um, to see what you'll do. But, of course, 
um, what they're actually doing there is a, a technique for what, for what Ken said, which is, well, he may have actually said it before we started recording, but when we were planning this lesson, we talked about the idea that the only way to learn something really properly is to practice. Mm. So you, you prepare appropriately, so you have your checklist and you know what it is you need to do if the engine is to shut off suddenly, so that when the instructor puts you in that situation, you, you can react in a safe way um, and in the best way for um, the optimum chance of getting the plane safely to the ground. And uh, yeah, I, I had that on many occasions. The spin training as well, I, your story made me remember, because you mentioned the first thing you did was actually something which was not the standard procedure for engine out, because you couldn't immediately convert speed to altitude. Yeah. You, you had to get out of the spin first. Yes. And getting out of a spin is not something which is particularly intuitive, and it's not something you know how to do without specifically practicing that. And I remember my my instructor who did the spin training for me, because we all do spin training, he enjoyed laughing <laughs> on the way down during the spin. <laughs> but it was, in a way, it was actually quite uh, reassuring because you could see that he was in control mm. and knew what to do. And so when you're in a plane and you're falling fast, your instinct is to, especially if the nose is pointing at the ground, your instinct is to pull up, mm. right? To stop looking at the ground because you don't want to be looking down there. That's scary. But of course, for a stall and for a spin, that is not a good idea. That is something which might end up ripping the wings off the plane. And what you actually have to do is get out of the spin, put the nose down, get the airspeed up, and then pull up, which is as you described it. The only way you can do that, I think, in an actual emergency is if you've practiced it beforehand. And that, that was what I found was far and away the most enlightening aspect of flight training as compared to, say, learning how to drive a car or learning how to, you know, do a bunch of play basketball or do maths or whatever it was. The other things I was learning when I was a teenager was that in flight training, you specifically practiced contingencies. You practiced what to do when things go wrong, what to do if something bad happens, what to do in this scenario, what to do in that scenario. You practiced all of these things so that if and when the time came, you would be prepared. And I... I cannot think of learning any other way now, having done that, because it's it's proven to be such an effective way of training a skill. Mm. It's fascinating that you that you describe it like that. I have to admit, I'm the only one on this podcast conversation who has never flown a plane. I have flown radio control planes, but they carry a little bit less risk profile. But I remember vividly as a teenager, a mate of mine converted an old Volkswagen Beetle into a sort of dune buggy thing. And down the end of his road, there was a basically an oval speed track in the bush. And on one morning, he wanted, he wanted to teach me how to drift the back of this thing out around the corner. And I was learning to drive and I thought, this sounds really fun. Can't be that hard. So the first time I went along the straight section of the oval, threw it into the corner and it didn't, nothing, nothing. It just tracked around like a car on a road. 
There was no drifting. There was no sliding. And I thought, okay, I've just got to go faster. So the second time around, I went faster and I just spun off the track into the grass, totally out of control. And it took a fair bit of time to get the, the feel of what it's like when the car loses its, its grip and the back starts to slide out and you're correcting the steering and, and things. After, after messing it up a lot of times, I, um, I got the feel for a little bit. And at the time, it was just something fun that a teenage boy might do with a paddock basher, you know, on a track. But um, I, I lived on a gravel road and I had numerous experiences as a car driver on the road where the uh, gravel was a little looser than I thought. Or, um, you know, many times subsequently, when I lived in Germany for a few years, I had this experience on snow mm. a number of times. The car losing traction on the road and I was able to respond better than I would have instinctively because I had trained my instincts. I had actually practiced that exact thing. So not flying a plane, but I, that's, that's a window into what you're describing, Luke. Maybe we should change the way we do driver training to be a little bit more like what we do with pilots. Quite so. I've always thought that since, since I had the opportunity to compare the two of them. I think we sort of in our education systems, at least the ones that I grew up in, we sort of make a distinction between academic learning and practical learning. And I don't know that it's always helpful or, or even really actually there most of the time. I'm not entirely sure where I'm going with this, but I, I think actually learning is, is learning and learning something well is the same technique regardless of the topic. Mm. Um, it's, it's not aviation related, but reading that verse um, brought, brought to mind um, an experience I had learning language, specifically verse 7 and 8 and 9. We talk about them all the time. Put them as symbols on your hands, bind them on your forehead, write them on the doorframe of your house and on your gates. So when I was learning Mandarin... Um, two big techniques that we would have as a class of students for learning. One was to talk Mandarin to each other as much as we could and not use any other languages to communicate to each other. And the second one, because when you're learning a new language as an adult, vocabulary is the, is the most uh, tedious part of the process. You're trying to remember all of these new words what we would do is basically write down the name of everything in your apartment, in your classroom, whatever, and stick it on the thing hmm. as a sticky note so that everywhere you looked, you were reminded of the words that you were trying to remember. Um, and that appears to be exactly the technique that <laughs> is being espoused in Deuteronomy. Uh, and I want to point out that I think it is very specifically a technique God is not giving these instructions just because it's religion and therefore it's important. So it talks about it as so important. No, it's actually specific learning processes and steps for how to make sure you don't forget. Because as much as we would all like to think we have amazing memories, we, we really don't. And if you want to learn something new, particularly something where you have to memorize lots of stuff, you need to use techniques. Mm. Well, I have an interesting anecdote. 
I, I heard this from a friend and colleague who does um, some training in sort of emergency response in the context of the rural fire service. He was telling me that there are there have reported recorded event incidents of commercial pilots experiencing genuine emergencies and having to emit mayday calls, having to transmit mayday calls, and accidentally using the wrong call sign. Instead of using the call sign of the flight they are piloting, they use the call sign of the training event that they may have done some years years earlier. In other words, it's it sort of speaks to the power of re- rehearsing emergencies. Yeah. Um, obviously, in in flying, those emergencies can come at you pretty hard and fast all of a sudden. Um, but I'm wondering about in life in general, do we rehearse emergencies so that we build default responses? Um, Ken, when you were just telling that story, you the did you have to stop? and think problem solving about what to do next no no it sounded as if you just you had some memorized responses there was a little bit of thinking required but you really were able to draw on some fairly um it was a mnemonic lodged away memorized procedures yeah a a, a mnemonic cmft is the first lot uh convert speed to height carby heat on mixture rich fuel content selection and pressure and trim for 70 knots. So that's the first one. Then F-most, um, uh, fuel, content, selection, pressure, again, because usually it's a fuel problem. Uh, mixture, uh, rich, oil temperature and pressure, switches, uh, magnetos checked and starter motor, and throttle, check for a full range of response. And then uh, bush is the last one, brakes off uh, and working, unlock the door um, uh, and select the undercarriage, depending on the uh, whether it's fixed or retractable undercarriage, uh, and then switches off and harnesses uh, secure. Um, so it, it's a very memorized uh, procedure. That's that's really cool. Um, certainly my, my car driver training did not feature very much of that kind of approach. And, and I'm wondering, I'm wondering if, if our approach to life in general, um, I mean, I just today, my son had a bit of a meltdown. He's only nine. Um, he had a bit of difficulty handling the emotion of being told that he we weren't buying a Lego set today. Uh, we weren't going to make that decision today, so we we definitely weren't buying it today. It was a difficult uh, and a temporarily traumatic thing for him. It messed up his afternoon. And I said to him just now at bedtime, um, you know, that's that was you were feeling sad about that, and that's fine. Um, but there will be sadder things happen in your life. Um, and what I, basically, I, was, I don't know if I handled it particularly well. I tried. Um, what I was trying to do was exactly what we're talking about here. I was actually trying to say, hey, we've got to, we've got to try and work out a response to this <laughs> that will scale a little bit to, to something much worse mm. happening. How you, you know, what are we going to do? How are you you know, personality comes into this and your different feelings and all different ways you process stuff. Um, is this something that we feature very much in our, the, the way we, I guess we're thinking about education as families here, but across a whole wide range of things, even just managing our own selves. I, I know a lot of people feel that they, they come to know themselves so much better, you know, in their in 30s or 40s than they did when they were, you know, emerging into adulthood in their 20s. Mm. 
Is it is it because we're not doing quite a good enough job of of role playing and rehearsing the emergencies? Certainly, I I think that when I look at young, you know, the experience of being a teenager or a child compared to my life now, you look at the those things which are devastatingly upsetting as a child or even as a teenager, um, and, and you get ecstatic about it as a child and a teacher, and they all seem so trivial. But I think that's because they are the, the opportunity to practice. Mm. Um, but you've got to recognize it as such. If you, if you don't recognize it and don't take the opportunity to learn or teach, um, and if you try and shield a child from it, you know, like instead of saying, you know, there will be worse things that happen in your life. You just go, oh, no, 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 it's not that bad. Or like worst case scenario, you caved in and got the Lego when you initially said you wouldn't. Then uh, I think, it, you know, I don't think the outcome would have been better. I know that I sort of got to adulthood without really having learned how to deal with with feeling bad about failure. Mm. Mm. And, and that was that was really unhelpful <laughs> for me for for decades um, and in everything I tried to do because whatever you do there'll be times when you fail and you need to have a good process for going through that time and coming out the other side of it and trying again and if you don't have that process um, it's really damaging. I guess this is where it connects for me to family because, and I think that there's many good families that that find retrospectively that they haven't quite handled this properly. And as I say, I I am sitting here reflecting on the way I tried to talk my son through what was a difficult afternoon for him, and I'm not sure that I put the right focus. You know, you wonder. But my 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 observation is simply, am I correct in identifying that family is a really important learning environment for these sorts of things are there other places that that i am that i'm overlooking at the moment are there other places in our lives where we learn some of these really important things by rehearsing and learning the mnemonics and the procedures and the protocols so that they become automatic responses well, I'm sure there are um, uh, um, uh, there are lots of workplaces that have um, you know, sa- safety procedures uh, as part of an occupational health and safety plan, the standard mm. operating procedures for um, equipment and uh, dangerous equipment or equipment uh, that involves risks. So there are, there are those sorts of uh, areas. The important thing, of course, is, and this is one of the points that I think is being made, uh, is not just to have the knowledge, not just to know the checks not just to have memorized the you know the mnemonics but actually to have uh, rehearsed uh, doing it or in fact to have uh, actually uh, done it uh, and and this is one of the things that mm. i think interestingly comes out in luke chapter 10 where jesus refers to our deuteronomy chapter 4 because he says uh, there's a teacher of the law comes along and says to jesus what must i do to inherit eternal life and jesus in a typical Jewish way, I think, says, uh, asks a question in response. Um, what is written in the law? Interestingly, he says this, how do you read it? Uh, and we 
need to understand that uh, when we approach any text, including scripture, uh, there is an interpretation. And Jesus expressly recognized that there's an interpretation there. But that's a that's another point. Um, he then the teacher then answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And I'd pause there and say, clearly, uh, within the Jewish culture, as uh, this expert in the law uh, saw it, the job that was specified for his parents in Deuteronomy chapter 6 I think I said previously Deuteronomy chapter 4, but in any event, it's Deuteronomy chapter 6, to speak about them uh, all the time clearly worked well because the, the, the Jewish teacher was very clearly able to answer, well, what's the greatest mm. commandment? Uh, here it is. This is the greatest commandment. But Jesus then says this, you have answered correctly. And so often I think we stop there with the correct answer. Um, and we're happy that we've got the correct answer. Thank you very much. I'll take my A and go. But Jesus replied, do this and you will live. And I think that's the that's the real issue uh, that we often have. We can have this head knowledge, um, but how do we do it? How do we put into practice love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13? And I think we do it in the family. And I think you, you did it this afternoon, Lachlan, because the very first thing in love is that love is patient. Uh, and so here we have uh, a practice for responding to our desire for gratification now um, uh, with patience. Uh, mm. So I, I think that is in the family that you've experienced this afternoon, uh, a, um, uh, an example of what Jesus said uh, when he said, do this uh, and you will live. And interestingly enough, he then tells the story of the Good Samaritan um, because the uh, teacher tried to test him. And the uh, he comes to the end and asks uh, another question, which of the three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert of the law said, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus again says, go and do likewise. So I think we need to practice these things. We need to practice patience. We need to practice mercy. And I think, on that point as well, it's important to recognize that the practice can start very early and, and maybe should start very early because if you overstudy something without practicing, you can put up mental obstacles in your own path. Um, you, you can start to get anxious about it and think about all the things that go wrong. And I think aviation is kind of instructive here as well because can I'm sure you remember very clearly. How many hours flying time did you have when you did your first solo? Yeah, uh, look, I don't remember very clearly. Something in the order of 10. Yes, yes, it's about 10. And, well, I, I can remember mine um, very, very clearly. And I think they always did it this way, and I think they did it on purpose, was you went out for a normal circuit session with the instructor. There was no, it, this is your solo that wasn't announced beforehand but you'd i mean that's the other thing is you got into the planes very early on and got up in the sky because that's ultimately what you were learning to do it wasn't about every everything that you studied in the books or in the classroom was in service of being safe in the plane so there was no advanced warning but you went up and you did a couple of circuits and the instructor was watching very carefully to make sure that i was not doing anything wrong 
I was doing everything well and safely. And then after we touched down one time, he just said, just pull the plane up here and I'll hop out and you can go around yourself if you, if you feel comfortable. Without giving me time to think too much about it and without giving me any sort of, you know, preparation time where I could sit and worry and stress. And then he hopped out and I went for a fly by myself. <laughs> um, and I think that is a very, very clever little mm. example I just want to pick up on, I, I think that's a very cool point, Luke. And I want to pick on something you said about starting early um, in the context of family. Again, just because it's on my mind from this afternoon, it's easy for me to look at my son's desire to buy the Lego set today and think, man, what a, what a, 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 a trivial thing, perhaps a kind of selfish thing, perhaps, you know, all sorts of judgments on it. But I think that for him, it was very genuinely for him a, a seriously difficult obstacle in his life this afternoon mm. he had to deal with. Mm. And um, maybe that's one thing that we could do as adults is to be a little bit compassionate and recognize the, the validity, the realness. You know, this, this kid has lost their teddy and that you can buy another teddy maybe the teddy doesn't even matter just just roll up your pajamas and you know cuddle them why, why do you even need the teddy but i think maybe there's a probably uh, maybe there's a real value in acknowledging hey here is a really tangible rehearsal of the life comes with loss and with pain and and this is just a teddy now but for this kid who's fairly young, that is genuine trauma. And there's an opportunity here to genuinely engage. And I think probably um, some, some expertise, some input from people who have understanding of child appro age appropriate sort of conceptualizations of things is super valuable, especially if you're a parent and you're not quite sure where to pitch it. But you, you see what I'm saying? Starting mm. early could mean um, that us as adults, are needing to step up a little bit in our recognition of the validity of an experience that looks really trivial, but might be actually far from that. It may be the experience that someone is remembering 50 years later when they're uh, at a different stage of life and they're remembering what is it that gave me the clues as to how to handle this engine failure while I'm in a spin. Mm. That's something like that. This is completely unrelated, but it isn't. Um, is that um, there's a um, John Ruskin, who was an architecture critic and an artist um, in the sort of, um, oh, I'm going to get this wrong, but I think it was the um, Victorian era England. He wrote one time about the sort of impact that people can have on the world and sort of their, you know, how big an impact somebody has and he said that uh, and i'm paraphrasing but he said that the greatest effects are felt from beyond the grave which is to say the further in the future your intended effort reaches you know the further off your goal is the bigger the impact will be and it's it's kind of that same idea which is the earlier the experience the more impact it has on the life Mm -hmm. later on the things that happen right at the beginning they have an entire lifetime to impact and change a person as opposed to the things that happen in the middle or towards the end 
uh, when most of the work is done. So you're absolutely right. These things which seem trivial to us, uh, you know, they may be a pivotal moment in, in our children's lives, mm. and we should take that seriously. I think there's a lovely way, given that this is about family, of finishing, rounding this off with Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. Let's turn there, Ken. It's Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 14. Paul says this prayer uh, for the Ephesians, um, which is related to family. And he says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. 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 Thanks for that, Ken. And that's where we're going to end. We look forward to you joining us next week for another interesting discussion. Next week is the law as teacher. And we're going to get Ken to share something with that from his, his expertise in the law. You're going to have to go and reread Crime and Punishment to prepare. <laughs>